You are listening to Q Art Foundation's Meeting Artist Needs program. Taxes for Artists presented by Richard Shibero. Q Art Foundation's Meeting Artist Needs program is generously supported by the Joan Mitchell Foundation. For more information, visit our website, qartfoundation.org. I will tell you there are not that many issues that distinguish artists from any other taxpayer. There are a few items that are somewhat unique in treatment, and we'll talk about those. Um, do most of you have support yourselves with your art, or do you have jobs and do art as a as a career that you're hoping to develop. So who, who mostly lives on a job? Okay, so about half and half. That those of you who make art and sell it and support yourselves have many fewer problems with the IRS than those of you who, who don't. The, what the IRS is, is interested in in its attacks on the art world, and they can be actually kind of vicious at times, are people who they believe are doing, making art as a hobby. And so we'll talk about hobby losses, but that's really where the big issue lies. So let me start by, by putting my glasses on so I can see my notes. How many of you work for, as a studio assistant for another artist? Just one of Generally what happens is if you work for someone else and you, you're either painting backgrounds, stretching canvases, doing stuff like that, and following their directions, you probably are, you are an employee. And as an employee, you should get a W-2 form, which is where your employer withholds taxes as opposed to a 1099 form where you're treated as an independent contractor. And the significance of that, for those of you in that situation, is that if you, from the employer's point of view, they have to pay payroll taxes and it's more costly to have you treated as an employee. So their inclination, their, their inclination generally is to want to treat you as an independent contractor. Your inclination, for the most part, is to be treated as an independent contractor because if you are, then that income is included on Schedule C, and there are certain limitations on Schedule C having to do with the use of your home. And so how many of you have, home, have studios in your homes as opposed to, all right, so a goodly number, but a good, Looks like a good number of you have studios that you rent or, or own, but are independent from your home. And that makes life a, a lot simpler. So, so you guys are making it hard for me. This could be a brief session. Um, if you are an independent contractor and you, have, you report that income on your return, you pay self-employment taxes, and you pay it to the tune of about 15.5%, slightly less than that. But if you are an employee and you get the same pay, 
your employer pays half of those taxes. So that's one of the reasons why employers want to treat you as an independent contractor. For the, do any of you employ other artists as studio assistants? Okay. And, and do you treat them as employees or do you treat them as independent contractors? Okay. Same. And do you direct what they do? I mean, do you tell them, you know, come in, come to my studio, my location, and come to my location at a certain time, and this is your task for the day. Okay, those people are really employees. And if I make any point tonight, I'm going to make it for the, for the benefit of you, the two of you. Do either, do you have, do you have workers' compensation insurance? Okay. So here's the deal. Um, taxes can be horrifying in terms of their, the way the IRS deals with things, the way New York State deals with things, but the worst of all, by far, is workers' compensation. So if, and this is the scenario, this is the way it happens, one of these people that are working for you gets terminated for whatever the reason. You, you don't need them, you want someone else, and they decide that they, they want unemployment insurance. And they go to unemployment and they claim they were employees of yours. That starts a ball rolling that is virtually impossible to stop. And the problem with that is not unemployment insurance and it's not withholding taxes, it's the fact that you didn't have workers' compensation insurance. And the reason that's so significant is that the penalty for not having workers' compensation insurance is $2,000 every 10 days. So if you think about one of your people working for you, now, that's not to say go out immediately and get a policy, because if you go out immediately and get a policy, they're going to come and audit you. And if they audit you, they're going to find these people. And I don't have an easy solution for that. So what I would say is if in the cycle of your business, you find that you're in a place for a year or so where you don't have employees, then either put people on the payroll or get a policy for yourself, which can be expensive at times. But that penalty, I've seen them charge people upwards of $100,000 on penalties for, for meaning, I mean, really meaningless stuff. So that's, that's something, and, and we can talk about it later if you have any questions, but that's a real serious issue, and it's not one that's easily dealt with by just getting a policy. You don't want to be audited by workers' compensation if you have someone that's on your payroll. And what I've told people to do, in fact, is where I had someone that was in that situation, I told them not to take a deduction for that for those people. So if we were talking about a few thousand dollars, better to forego the deduction and treat it as if you were giving them a gift. Don't give them a 1099, don't take a deduction for it. Let yourself go for a year and then make them employees, come in, get a workers' comp policy, and, and then they're employees and you're starting from scratch. So what do you call very serious? I mean, what if someone just comes to your studio five or ten hours a week and does whatever they want to do? 
The time is not. That's the that's the issue, and that's why I'm warning you about it. I mean that that's a common situation. What happens is if you can make a case that these people are independent contractors in the sense that they have their own studio or workshop, they work on specific projects at their own time and with their own tools. So I have fabricate, I have people who are hired as fabricators for sculptors. And in those cases, the, the artists ask them to make a piece, they make it in their own studio. Occasionally they could make it in, if they're the ones setting the schedule and they're the ones with the tools and they're the ones with the expertise and you're not specifically directing them. And workers' comp seems to think if you have your own website, you're an artist and you're, you can be independent. So if they do this work for other people, if they have their own website, if they sell, you may get by with arguing that they are not employees. But basically the criteria is if you direct them and you provide their where they work, how they work, when they work, then they're employees. It's not as simple. And you had a question back there? Disability, it, it, disability is the same, except that the penalty for disability is about $500. So if they came in and said you didn't have a disability policy, it's, it's not going to kill you. Workers' comp, and the reason I'm going on about it, workers' comp is insane. I mean, they really, they really are punitive at a level that I, I've never seen anywhere else in the system. And it literally is, if they come in and they say someone's an employee and you don't have a workers' comp policy, they'll go back to the earliest period within generally three years and they will assess you $2,000 for every 10 days you didn't have a policy. I mean, so you're finished. You know, it's... What is your point paid Well, a paid intern, are you paying the school for the intern or are you paying the intern? Well, if you're paying the... Well, a minimum per hour becomes becomes a job. I mean, I you know I, I'd like to tell you that there's a de minimis rule that if you you know if you have someone and you pay them less than thousand dollars a year, nobody cares. But that's not the way they work. And and you also need to understand that not every agent is the same. Some are a little more reasonable, a little more flexible, a little more pliable, and some are just impossible. They feel that their job is to get whatever they can get from you. So what I would suggest to, to you in this case is that, not, not that it's necessarily going to help, but get a letter from this person, and maybe you don't want to put the idea in their head, but that they are self-employed, they have to get you could require them to get their own workers' comp insurance policy. And if they have their own workers' comp, then you don't need to get a workers' comp policy for them. I'm starting with the, the big fear chip. That's, that's the worst thing that I think you're going to see. Um, if you're filing a Schedule C, what the rules say 
is that if you are in a trader business, you can take all of your deductions to offset your income. They say, however, that if you use a portion of your home as a studio, then you can only take deductions for that portion of your home up to an income level of zero. So in other words, if you sold something for $10,000, you had $5,000 of supplies, your net income before your studio would be $5,000. If the portion of your rent that applied to your studio was $10,000, you could only get a $5,000 deduction on your return. It would take your Schedule C income to zero. The additional $5,000 that you couldn't use carries forward, and it carries forward indefinitely. So what you want to do if you want to deduct a portion of your studio, if you want to deduct all of your studio, is generally you want to have as much 1099 income as you can get so that all of those deductions for rent that you're entitled to for your studio are deducted. So that's where this thing, where you're working at cross purposes. You want to get that 1099, but the person, if, if the person you're working for does this thing right, they want you to be an employee, in which case you can't use that income, in which case you're limited on the amount of deductions you can take for your home studio. So that's sort of, I mean that. Does anyone want to talk some more about that? Yes, Schedule C is for a self-employed business. So it's like running, I mean, a Schedule C could be a laundry. It's just a single individual who is in business for themselves. If, if you were running a candy store and you chose the form was Schedule C, you would report all of your income and all your expenses on that form. If you and I decided that we would run it together, then it becomes a partnership. And a partnership is a different set of rules. It's basically the same income, but it's a different form. It's a 1065. So Schedule C is for a self-employed single individual, and it goes on your regular 1040. Yes? Um, well, they're, they're, what you're touching on are what they refer to as the hobby loss rules. Yeah. Now, the IRS generally doesn't understand the hobby loss rules. So I'm going to tell you what, it, it's section 183 in the Internal Revenue Code, and the hobby loss rules say that if you have a profit on Schedule C, in three out of five years, then you will be deemed to be in a trader business. Now, it doesn't say that if you don't have a profit, you're not deemed to be in a business. So it really is what we refer to as a safe harbor rule for artists. So if you meet that three out of five year test, then you don't have to worry about the IRS coming in to say you're not in business. Now, 
there's a ton of case law that says you can have losses for all of your life. Never make a profit. And if you conduct yourself in a business-like way, and if you are trying, it's all tied to the terminology is profit motive. If you can demonstrate that you have a profit motive, that you're trying to make money, then you can actually win. And it doesn't, I mean, there are cases that what they try to do is they try to, they're going after people who do things that other people view as fun. And my guess is that if you're like the artists I know, there's a part of what you do that's fun, and there's an awful lot of it that's not fun at all, that's agonizing, that's difficult, that's, that's something you wish someone else would do for you. Um, but what they do, what the case law says, there's, there's a, a famous case called Churchman, and, but in the regulations under Section 183, there are nine tests. And basically, they talk about to establish whether you have a profit motive. So keeping a good set of books and records, keeping a separate checking account. I mean, the IRS, if you use your personal checking account for your business, which most people that I know that are like you guys do, that's the IRS would say, well, that's not business-like. So you want to make sure that you keep an inventory, a detailed inventory, that you know, you know, these days it's generally digital, but you know where the work is, you know where you sold it. You want to be sure that you're out trying to sell work. You want to go to galleries. You want a, a body of uh, correspondence with galleries, museum people, curators, collectors, things like that, that shows you are actively pursuing sales. I have just been involved with a client of mine who actually went to tax court. And I sat there for four days as I watched this drama play out. And this is someone who is as serious an artist as you're ever going to find. But she also teaches. And the IRS tried to make the argument that her, her art-related work was an adjunct to her teaching. Now, she had records, she had better records than most of my business clients. Just incredibly detailed records, incredibly well run. Everything was stored properly, everything was, her, all of her correspondence for 20 years was kept. Her records were immaculate, she had supporting documentation for every deduction, and the IRS, is fighting like crazy because and she and she had had several years of significant income but mostly they had been losses what you end up with is you get you get IRS agents who who are jealous and and that's really what it is they're jealous of the fact that all of you are taking deductions that they can't take and the crazy thing is they fail to understand that for every dollar of deduction that you spend, you save 30 cents. So nobody's going to spend a dollar to make 30 cents, but they have a view that artists are happy-go-lucky and they're sitting around and they're 
chatting and painting and just having a ball. Um, we know that's not necessarily the way it works. Yeah. Okay. New York State has said New York that? State. Well, New York State has been doing these. Is it a mail, a, a by mail audit? I mean, did someone come in or you just sent the documentation? No, no. You file it. If you are an artist, if you're there trying to make money, if you have a profit motive, if you, if you have a profit motive, is really all there is. But, I, but they're, they're so mean, and I don't, I don't make objects, right? So what's my problem? I don't know if I'm going to get it. Well. Well, it's not a lot. I mean, do you, do you generate losses? Have you been generating losses? Yes. Well, I think what you want to do is look, look up that Churchman case. Yes. The Churchman case, or look up, you know, Google, Google the regulations for Section 183. Or you can call me. I'll give you a card. There are nine factors. And I think what you want to do is you want to write them a letter and you want to tell them that you have a profit motive and, and you disagree with it and you want to protest it and you want to, you want to appeal it. I don't know what the New York appeal process is. I've never, New York generally has piggybacked off the federal. So what they've done is the IRS will come in, they'll make an adjustment, they will tell New York they made the adjustment and you pay the adjustment. It's only two years ago that I've ever seen New York initiate audits. So I, right, right. And so I think you want to fight it because they're going to tell the IRS what they did and you don't want to acknowledge that and you continue to file the way you're filing. I mean, that's absolutely what I would do. As long as you legitimately have a profit motive, then you should file as if it's a trader business because that's what it is. Um, and they really have been incredibly unfair about these things. So I'm not sure why. New York is desperate for money, which is why they're doing what they're doing of late. I think what they're trying to do is establish a pattern. So if they can, and I think this case that I'm involved with, that I went to tax court with, they want to set a precedent. They've got someone who who has a credible argument on all the nine issues. And if they can win this case, a tax court case sets precedence. So if they can win this case, it would overturn the Churchman case, or it would effectively weaken it dramatically. And so that, in part, is why. I mean, I, I really think the motives of the agent are selfish and petty. but. Mechanically, they are—they would be setting a precedent. Now, state precedents don't mean anything. This is just a mean-spirited attempt to raise some money, and I would fight it all the way. Let's go back to grants. Yeah. 
Grants generally are subject to income tax. So usually when you get a grant, you get a 1099. The only thing about grants that, that you really need to focus on is whether the grant is given to you where it requires you to do something. If you're required to do a project, if, you, you know, if you're paid to do a project, paid to, to make a work, paid to do some research, something like that, then that grant really goes on Schedule C. And it's subject to self-employment income, subject to self-employment tax. If it's just a grant in recognition of work you have done, just an award for past performance and, and recognition of your accomplishments, it doesn't require anything of you, then it doesn't need to go on Schedule C. It can go on page one of your return, and it's not subject to self-employment tax. Now, you may find in certain situations that you want to put such a grant on Schedule C because maybe you've got losses that you couldn't otherwise use that have been suspended because of the fact that your, your deductions for an office at home have been limited. So if your, office, if your deductions for offices, go back to my example before. So my example before was that you have $10,000 worth of sales, $5,000 worth of expenses, and $10,000 worth of, of rental income, but you could only use five because that took you down to zero. So now let's say you get a $5,000 grant. The question is, do you take that grant on Schedule C? And if you do, then your income becomes $15,000. Your deductions are the $5,000 worth of supplies, and you can take the full $10,000 of rent. So by putting it on Schedule C, you've actually gotten to take deductions you wouldn't have otherwise gotten. If you put it on Schedule, on page one of the return, you don't, you still had that carried forward, you wouldn't have gotten the benefit. So if you're in a position where you get a grant, you, you really need to think about how you want to report it, on Schedule C or not on Schedule C. Let, let me sort of jump around a little bit. Um, one of the advantages that artists have that no one else in business has is that artists get to deduct all of their costs in the year they're incurred, which is really significant. So if you were making tables, not art tables, but tables like this, and you spent $5,000 for supplies, and you ended up with five tables, but you only sold one of those tables, then your deduction for supplies would only be one-fifth of the $5,000 you spent on the tables. So you wouldn't get a deduction for $5,000. You'd only get a deduction for $1,000. That other $4,000 becomes inventory. And when you sell that table in the future, then you can deduct the cost of that table. It doesn't work that way for artists. So the artists that did these paintings got to deduct the cost of the stretchers, the canvas, the paints, everything in the year the work was made, not when it was sold. 
And so that's a very unusual benefit. The IRS tried to take it away in the late 80s, and the artists in this wonderful activist way that you have convinced their congressmen and, and convinced the IRS that they, would, that they should change it back to where it was. I mean, it was, a, it was slightly complicated. It got changed in two stages, but it's back to where you can deduct all of the costs of making your art in the year that you incur it. Are you talking about different media? I mean, yeah, media? No, I, mean, so, I work, I'm a writer, but okay. I also work as a teaching artist, and I also work as a choreographer, and I also work in, and all of those I, I earn income. And most of them are through theaters that right. I'm an employee, but there are some that are 1099, so it's kind of a, I mean, and I, he really simplifies it because he says it, it kind of confused and problematic. I think technically the answer is each separate line of work requires a separate Schedule C. From a practical point of view, I agree with it. If it's a 1099. Yeah, yeah, anything that is yeah. 1099 related that Great. relates to your art. I mean, yeah. you know, I do have someone who's a painter and a writer, and I do file two Schedule Cs. Because he puts it all, yeah. he just picks one, he's been picking one title and then kind of I, I mean, I, I think those, I wouldn't you give them 10. Seat. I want, I mean, I, again, I, I yeah. think the requirement is each line of work okay. requires a Schedule C, but, but I think you, you certainly don't want to do it by, you know, oils aren't one versus acrylics versus drawings. But I think writing and, and painting right. are probably two separate lines of work. Yes. Well, that's, I would say you're an independent journalist and, you know, you would blend the two together. I mean, you know, that, I mean, that would be my sense about that. And personally, I'm not an artist. No, no, but I'm, but I'm saying, what I'm saying is you, those two seem linkable to me as one, you know, if, if you were an artist, uh, I guess, I mean, I'm thinking in terms of journalism, but. You, you could do journalism as an illustrator, you could do journalism as a, as a writer. And I, th I would, you know, I'd probably put artists and I'd probably do it on one Schedule C. I wouldn't, I wouldn't separate that. I think what you were talking about is a little bit more diverse. They're not, they're not tied together in the same way. Yes? For the art handling? Yes. Okay. So, with um, are the art, being an artist and being an art handler, are those close enough that they could be? <laughs> well, well I, I think I certainly have taken the position that they are. I mean, I, you're not alone in that combination of, of uh, endeavors. So my rationale is that people who handle art need to know about art, need to be, I mean, it helps, lots of, you know, almost all the art handlers I know are artists. So it requires 
a, a similar set of skills, and I have included them together in the past. And and again, if I, I'm not sure that if all the facts were presented, you wouldn't have a fight on your hands. I'm not sure you'd lose it, but but it's not a it's not a clearly winning argument. I think again, I think I could make a case for it that you know how stretchers work, you know how canvases get attached, you know, you know what happens to a canvas, you know, you know, you know how the how the work should look on a wall and those are all skills that you use in both both art handling and in making your own work. So that's the way I'd approach it. Yeah. Well, you know, again, it depends on the exposure they're facing. They, they generally do that. There, there's a, a wide misconception that if you only work a few hours a week, it should be a 1099. And that's, that's absolutely a misconception. It, time has nothing to do with it. It's direction. If you tell someone what to do, where to do it, when to do it, how to do it, uh, they're employees. Uh, it's more complicated to have a payroll. There's workers' comp, there's disability, there's withholding. And withholding, most people that hold themselves out as independent contractors don't want withholding. They want to pick that income up because they have other deductions to offset it against. So it's always a balance. I always tell my clients that they should have their assistants treated as employees because that's the right and safe way to do it. But I've got lots of clients who are treated, who get 1099s for that same work. And we, we live with it. And, and as long, I, I think the real issue is getting someone who is going to go look for unemployment if you don't have adequate insurance that that turns around and, and bites you in the behind you know that's that's a that's a real serious issue but technically if you follow someone's direction it doesn't matter how long you work you're really an employee and you should be treated accordingly yes It's, I would, I would say that it's, if you are going to do art related work for them, then it's income and it should be on Schedule C. Oh, so you don't have to have a 1099? You don't have to have, no, no, 1099s are only for, for U.S. reporting entities. So no, if you get, you know, there are plenty of, there's an issue about, I, I just, there's a friend of mine who's a lawyer who does a lot of work with artists whose name is John Cagle, who I did this with once. John Cagle is absolutely convinced that galleries should not give artists 1099s for the work they sold. A lot of galleries do give artists 1099s. My feeling is that I'm not sure. I've never, I followed the custom of the artist. I think it's always it's done for the artist's convenience in most cases. Since the work, the sales need to be reported, to give it to the artist 
in writing makes it clearer to them what they received and it saves them some record keeping issues. There are artists, I suppose, who don't report everything and those artists would be reluctant to get 1099s. But, but I think the rule probably is you don't have to get a 1099 and about half the galleries I work with give them, half don't. I do know what you mean. I would say that if, if I had a loss of $200 and I've been running losses for a couple of years, I might give up $300 worth of deductions so I had a $100 profit that year. I don't think you want to throw deductions out. But if you're right at the edge and you can have a profit, I would say do that. Yes? You're saying that because you know that I was there. That's right. It's right. Six, and it's still 600. No inflation in 1099. But, so. but in that case, if you had, let's say, 10 representatives, and they each sold one piece for $500, that's still 1099. No, 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 no. You wouldn't get a 1099. You have to declare the income. Okay. The, the rule is whether you get a 1099 or not, if you get the income, you pay taxes. No, not not even in the, the days before me was that the case. No, that's never been the case. Right, right, right. So it's it's really you've got to report whatever income you get. Yes, sir. Well, again, yes, you can, certainly. Um, the, the only, you know, the issue, again, is whether they're an employer or an independent contractor. And if this is like a one-shot deal, are they going to be working? It's a one-shot deal. Do they work in your space? Okay. So if they work in your space and you basically... What happens when you get older is you tell war stories. So some of them are interesting, some may be boring, but I'll try to make it quick. Um, I had a client that was an art gallery. And they, he was a, a, the dealer lived in Vienna. And they opened a branch of the gallery in New York. So the work, when he shipped work in, very often it was unframed. So they made it a whole lot cheaper to ship. So we got a whole bunch of drawings in, and he got a framer to take them to his shop. And the framer built frames for all these drawings for the show. Framer had a card, a shop, letterhead, was, was an independent framer. 
and decided that things were getting rocky for him. And he went out and he claimed that he was an employee of the gallery and was entitled to unemployment. And they, there was, as crazy as that sounds, New York, what we would, it was gonna be like five or $600 that we would have had to pay. What they demanded of us would have cost thousands of dollars in time in responding to their questions and writing up why it didn't apply, even though it's patently obvious on, on its face that it was wrong. And so they will most likely say that this person is an employee. And so you really need to be careful. Now, I'm not telling, you know, it happens in, to all of us every day. There are violations of this rule. So if it's a one-shot deal, it happens once. You trust the person. You know they're not going to do it. Um, you take your chances with it. I'm not certainly not advocating that all of you go out and get workers' compensation insurance. What, I'm, what I want you to be aware of is what the risks are. So you might want to get them to sign a letter saying that they are working on this specific project, they're independent contractors, they do this on their own. Preferably, it's the only thing that workers' comp seems to focus on when they examine is if the person has their own website. I can't, for the life of me, understand why that's so critical. But if the person has a website saying that they, they do, you know, they are artists and they do projects and things like that for other people, somehow they, they are willing to accept that if the websites are clearly, are clear enough and if they indeed have income from other sources. So, I mean, I usually just, you know, they give me an invoice. I use that invoice. Yeah, no, no, absolutely you can, I, I wouldn't, I'm not questioning whether you can deduct it. Of course you can deduct it. But, but that's when not it, evidence enough. Even if no, again, we're talking, that's evidence enough to get a deduction for federal taxes and for state taxes. It doesn't get you off the hook if that person were to say that they were an employee and they want unemployment. That, that's all I'm saying. So I'm coming back to that same issue because it scares me. Yes. I'm an employee because I, you know, It is. I mean, I'm certainly not an expert in this, but I know that if you have income, I, I just, I had a client this year who was getting unemployment insurance, but was also selling some art. And they, I don't know how they did it, but they caught up with them. And they, they made him pay it back, pay the unemployment back to the extent of what he earned. Oh, the, that. Yeah, I'm not. I'm. I'm not. I. I don't. That I said I wasn't an expert, but I think if after the fact it turns out that they overpaid you by, you know, ten percent or whatever they gave you, they're going to want that ten percent back. I mean, I. I think that makes sense that they would do it that way, but, but you need to, 
you need to be telling them what you're earning. I, I don't think it's an all or nothing thing. You know, they'd like to see you trying to earn money, but you, there is some some adjustment that's made. You got a question back there? Um, I work for a guy and I, I could not be more than an employee. It's, uh, but he pays me 10 minutes. It's like, you know, $30,000 a year. Right. Uh, I assume he does that because it's to his advantage. And I guess I'm wondering why. All right, does he have any employees? No, one, someone who, so the, you're the only one and, and you get paid a 1099. Yeah. Well, I'm assuming that he doesn't want to incur the cost of, of doing a payroll. It's cheaper for him. Okay. But, I mean, he's exposed, too. You know, if you were to say, you know, my guess is in a situation like that, he doesn't have a worker's comp policy. So if you were to claim... And I'm not advocating you do this. This is I is a bad. I mean, it really is uh, for someone who who enters into a you know even an understanding or an informal contract with someone that that that's the way they're working. I think since you're here, I don't want I I would use the term reprehensible if you weren't here. But I think to put someone through the agony of what this would be if you wanted to claim unemployment knowing you weren't entitled to it be, because of that understanding. Um, he could be in a lot of, he could be in hot well, water. I mean, he is kind of a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> this seems like a well, I, I leave, I leave that to you. Well, I mean, that, that probably is, but, but it's, uh, you know, that, that's something you need to deal with, with you know, uh, with your own conscience. I suppose it depends on how big a jerk he really is, you know, but that's, uh, yes. Can you talk about double checks? I could. <laughs> so, if you're making sales yourself out of your, out of your studio, you're required to register with the New York State Sales Tax Department, and you can do that online, and there's a form, and you fill it out and send it in. Depending upon, and I don't know the limits off the top of my head, but you know, if most of you are, you know, not making a fortune selling your art and you're not selling through a gallery, then you're probably required to file once a year. And you have to collect, you don't have to collect sales tax for anything that's sold out of state. But what that means is you've got to give it to a common carrier, like FedEx or UPS or something like that. If someone lives in Connecticut, but they come and pick the work up at your studio, then it's a New York City sale, and you've got to collect New York City taxes. Yes, uh, and what so. You deliver, so you can't like deliver it in your truck to Connecticut and then not post the sales tax. These things. Are so <laughs> no, nobody has ever asked me that question. You can't. Well, I mean the the rule. The, <laughs> I, I don't, to be honest, I don't know the answer. I, I think, I mean, the general rule is you need a common carrier, you need to keep a bill of lading. Uh, I don't know if there's anything specific. I guess one of the things that's problematic is how do you prove that you did that? 
and and I'm not sure that you wouldn't be viewed as an agent of the purchaser as opposed to an independent agent. So I don't, I, I, if I had to guess, I would say there's a potential problem. We're taking a practical approach. If you drove it to someone's house in Connecticut, I would get them to acknowledge receipt there that, you know, say, have them sign a letter saying that you delivered the piece and it was received you know, at such and such a location, at such and such a date. And I don't, you know, what's the likelihood of you getting audited? Not, not great. So you play the audit lottery. But I, I think that that probably wouldn't technically get you out of it. If you get audited, does that mean you're more likely to get audited forever? Depends on the results. Okay. If you get audited and there are no changes, then you sort of have a free pass for a couple of years. In, in other words, I have an IRS audit and they say there are no changes. They audit me, I get a letter two months later for the, for the next year or the year after. I can go to them and say this is repetitive and I had no change last time and they will give you a pass. If you have a problem, so the case I told you, my tax court case, they audited 2004, 5, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. So they've just gone after this person in, in a merciless, just horrific way. And, and if you think about how many years of someone's life that takes, it's really, it's really, uh, you know, it's, it's awful. There, there are less people being audited now. The IRS is cutting back its audit staff. Um, the IRS is doing mail audits as well, which they never used to do. You know, they'll send you a letter saying, send us documentation. And uh, they audit it. The quality of the, what I will tell you is the quality of the personnel that are doing those correspondence audits is not nearly as good as the level of the people doing the office and, and, and studio audits. And those people aren't terribly good to begin with. So um, I'll tell you what, if you get audited and you get um, a correspondence audit, what you want to do is just make sure everything is crystal clear. That you start off with the schedule they're asking about you highlight the number that they're looking for. You refer it to either a folder, which has got you know 20 documents stapled together with an adding machine tape. What you don't want is someone struggling around. I mean, there are two, I guess there are two schools of thought. One is you want to give them a bag of loose receipts and torment them. But you're smiling at that. The, the answer, unfortunately, sometimes is they just get angry and say, the hell with it, I'm disallowing everything. If you give them stuff that's immaculately organized, very often their assumption is that you're businesslike in the way you practice, A, and B, it's easy for them to see stuff. And if they can see that it's all there, they're much more inclined, I think, to, to pass, you know, to accept it. They don't particularly want to spend a lot of time going through bag full of loose receipts. Nor does your accountant want to do that, I can assure you. 
I have had experiences in my life which make me feel that there's a cosmic element to this and that someone will get looked at three or four years running. Something will come up on a return and then not again ever or not again for a long time. And there are some people who, who never, I mean, I like to think that I do a good job, but, but I've got lots of people who have never been audited. Um, and I think the IRS keeps, in fact, I know the IRS keeps track. All accountants are required to have something called a P-TIN number. And it's the way the, the IRS keeps track of accountants. So if they've got an accountant, and every time they audit a return that that accountant prepared, and it's a disaster each time, well, his or her clients are going to get looked at more often than, than not. So if you go to an account and the accountant says, Dad, don't worry about the paperwork, we'll make it up as we go, and there are accountants that work that way, that's someone you want to stay away from. I'll tell you a, another secret. There's no, there's no real rocket science in this. There are technical areas and there are things you, you may want to know. We'll maybe touch on some, we'll touch on charitable giving of art because there are some things in there that are, that are subtle. But if you're talking about a relatively straightforward, simple return and you're reasonably adept on a computer, then using TurboTax is not so terrible. You know, or something like that. I mean, you don't need to get, if it's very straightforward, you don't necessarily need to pay someone a lot of money. And I would say that you're better off um, using some, you doing it yourself, taking care, putting the numbers together, than using a, an inexpensive commercial preparer. I'm not going to use any names. But I have found when I, got a client who had used one of those corporate inexpensive preparers, that the returns were disasters, just disasters. People absolutely had no idea what they were doing. Whereas if you go through TurboTax or something, and it's not that I'm an expert, I don't know TurboTax, but it walks you through the process. So it will ask you, the appropriate questions as opposed to dealing with someone who doesn't really know what the appropriate questions would be. So I think when you start to, to get serious and you start making you know, a decent amount of income or you have complicated issues, you definitely should look for an account that's competent. But at, you know, at the rates we charge, I would like to think that, I, let me put it another way, I, I feel to get a very straightforward return that doesn't take more than a couple hours of entering data and find we have a minimum fee of $1,000 for a return. So we, we charge what's really unnecessary for someone that can't afford it. I mean, most of the clients we have can afford it and we need to run an office, et cetera. But, but if you're starting out and you can't afford that, Better to do it yourself than to use a cheap accountant is the, is the message. Yes? I was curious if um, you do your own tax, whether it's tax, you know, TurboTax or whatever, or have a preparer do it, is that flagged? If I ask the people in charge of it themselves versus a preparer? 
Well, I, I don't know. But I would say that the IRS has certain metrics that they use. They look at a return and they see, they know how many standard deviations away from the mean you fall based on profession, based on income level, et cetera. Um, and I think they're auditing, they're, there's a portion of the auditing that's random, but there's a portion that's based upon how your return looks. So I would say that if you're, you do it yourself on TurboTax, and it looks the same way it would look on my software, you haven't increased your odds of being audited. Um, if it looked dramatically different because of some unusual factor, then I think it's going to get kicked out. There is, there, just as an aside, and I'm not 100% sure this is true, but there, a lot of people want to file their return on time because they feel they're less likely to be audited somehow. And I, it's my understanding that it's just the opposite, that if returns are extended, you are less likely to be audited. And the reason is the first batch of returns goes through and they select a group of returns for audit. By the time, if they're not done with all of those returns, by the time the, the final deadlines are done, then the ones at the end that got picked last aren't going to get ordered. So there is some sense that I have that if you file in October instead of filing in April, that you are less likely to get audited. But I don't know that that's true. And my advice to you all is to not be worried, is to do it the right way and not be worried about being audited. Being audited is a nuisance. It's, it's a pain in the ass. But, but it's not, you know, unless you're doing something profoundly wrong, it's nothing more than a nuisance. Yes? Well, I, I think depend, what I would say is depending on your documentation. I mean, if you can support all the numbers, and again, I don't go to an audit with, with a bag of receipts. You, that's not a good way to do it. But if, if you have a folder for every category of income on the return, and you know things are totaled and, and adding machine tapes and you know, everything looks clean and neat, then I'm not sure you need someone. I would say that, you know, we're, we're talking about generally the group that I talk to here are young starting artists. So um, there's, there aren't huge tax issues. My general advice to my clients is never go to an audit alone, ever. And the one time I had, again, a war story, I had an artist who was being audited, and he was very nervous, wasn't, there was no particular problem with the return. He, I couldn't get him to shut up. I couldn't, short of kicking him, which I tried subtly a few times, he just went on and on and gave the agent much, much more information than was being asked for. So it also depends on how cool and calm you can be, you know. And, and one of the other things that is helpful if you have 
if you have someone else handling the audit is, we talk about the situation of a studio assistant and you're being asked about this person as to whether they're an employee. Um, I can say, you know, that I don't know exactly what this person does. If they ask you, you're handling the audit, you don't have the option to deny knowledge or to, to hedge on knowledge. So if there are big issues that might be significant, then you probably don't want to be the one there. I mean, that's, no, no, I understand. But I'm saying, you know, in theory, it doesn't matter. But, but it also depends on the person. It depends on the issues. And, and, you know, there are certain minefields. And you, when they ask you a question, you may not know what they're asking about or where they're headed with their question, whereas I would know. And, and so I think, you know, the general advice is you probably should talk to someone. I, so I, I take back what I said before. I, I, I don't think going to an audit alone is probably a great idea. Well, it's not actually, it's, it's a traditional sore spot for artists. But it's, it's not, I mean, in terms of how it works, it's cut and dry. An artist cannot get a deduction for art that they created. You can't get a charitable deduction for art you created. Now, you also can't get a charitable deduction for art that was given to you by another artist. So you can't swap paintings with someone and each of you then gives it away later on when it's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. However, what you can do is you can sell and buy from someone whose work you respect. I mean, if there are two of you and you both think you're going to be art stars at some point and you're, you're young, you can buy each other's work, and all that happens is, let's say, the work's $1,000. I give you $1,000, you've got to report that as income. You give me $1,000, I've got to report that as income. And all we, the cost of that is just the tax cost on that $1,000. And if we've got limitations because of home studio, and you know maybe it's not going to cost us anything. But at a minimum, if you're going to pay tax on it, Maybe it's going to cost a couple hundred dollars, and that's your investment. Well, that piece of work, if, first of all, you have to keep a record of it, that piece of work 20 years from now, if it turns out to be worth a lot of money, can be given away and a deduction taken. So I think those kinds of things where you, you know, you know you're gambling too, and you don't know what's going to happen, and one of you may be very successful, and one of you may be less successful, and it's a chance you take. So buy work that you like if you're going to do it. But, but that is one way to get around that issue. The other thing is hold it long enough, die with it, and your heirs will be able to give it away and get a charitable deduction. But that's, that's real long-term planning and not necessarily what you want to do. Nothing. And actually, if you think about it, 
the deduction you can get technically is the cost of materials. But you've already deducted the cost of materials, so you can't do it a second time. And that's, that's all there is. So you get points in heaven, but you don't get any tax deduction. What I would say is to the extent you can put money away in a pension plan, whether it's an IRA for the youngest of you, Roth IRAs are, are a real boon. And if you can put money away in a Roth IRA, because a Roth IRA allows you to put money away and it's never taxed. You don't get a deduction for it, but it's never taxed. So it, if you put $5,000 away now and 40 years from now you take it out and it's $100,000, all of that appreciation escapes taxation. So Roth IRAs are great. But I would try to discipline myself. Artists by nature, I think, aren't, aren't I see a mix of people. There are some who are meticulous and detailed and are very well organized, can plan very well, and uh, are never surprised by their tax liability. They know to put money away. But I would say a majority of artists are less attentive to the details. So what I would say to you is when you make a sale, if you're in a tax-paying position with respect to your art, is put some, you know, try to figure out roughly what percentage goes to taxes and try to put that percentage away in an account that you don't touch. So when your tax liability comes due, where you're making estimated tax payments, then you have it there. And, and to add on top of that is to try to put some percentage away for a pension plan. Now, the only, and, and there are, again, IRAs, there are, there are things called SEPs, the Simplified Employee Pension Plan. There are 401ks where you can, where you can put more $17,500 away. SEPs are a percentage of what you, roughly 20%, it's 25%, but net of your self-employment tax deduction. So effectively, a SEP is about 20% of what you earn. An IRA is $5,000. But when one or more of you become incredibly successful, there, there is something called a defined benefit plan where you can put hundreds. I mean, I've literally seen deductions where artists have put three or $400,000 away in a plan. And so when you get to that stage, should you, hopefully all of you will, there, there are ways to shelter your income. And that's really the only legitimate shelter. So it's something I would say for, for the group of you, IRAs or SEPs or, or 401ks or something like that is where you want to focus and put away what you can. Because it's amazing how much, if you're careful and you save over time, I grew up in a generation that had, had experienced, or the generation before me had gone through the Depression for maybe a generation and a half. But I, I lived once, I had neighbors whose tax work I did, and one of them worked, was a vice president at Goldman Sachs, and the other was a very senior attorney at a big law firm. And they never had, they made a ton of money and they never had any cash. 
And at the same time, I had a client who was an artist who had taught and sold work, not sold a lot of work, but had been careful and saved and had a ton of money. I mean, he, he ended up buying a house for his kid, each one of his kids, and he had lots of money. And, and it was about his approach to life. And I think, I, I think it's easy to, you know, New York's a terrible place to live in in terms of costs, but try to put money aside. I mean, that's sort of general financial advice. But I think that's, that's a critically important thing to keep in mind always. Well, uh, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, I would say that getting rid of the student debt because the interest rates are so high would be my primary objective. If you're putting money in, into a, an IRA account and you're earning 2% and your student debt is 6%, you know, try to get the student debt paid down as quickly as you can. I mean, it's just you know, it's sort of simple economics. I, I try to do, yeah, I mean, that's what I would do. Try to get rid of the high, you know, don't have credit card debt because that debt is insanely expensive in terms of interest rates. Try to get rid of that. Yes? Well, it depends. The, the issue... Roth IRAs, I can't give you a simple answer, and you can discuss it. Part of it is an age issue. You know, I, I think for me to put money in a Roth is, doesn't make a whole lot of sense because of my age. If I were 25 years old, I would put money in the Roth. You forego your tax deduction by not putting it in, by putting it in the Roth. So, depends on what tax bracket you're in now. If you're in a low bracket, maybe it's worth foregoing that deduction. You know, if all of a sudden you find this is a very low year and you can put money in the Roth, yes, that makes sense. If this is a high year and you'd save a lot in taxes, you might not want to do a Roth. I, I think I would revisit that situation with your accountant, you know, each year. I don't think you can make a generalization except the age generalization. I think if you're, if you're really young, I would do it, regardless of what the tax rate was. Okay, I'm sort of at the end of, I've skipped around. I, don't, I think I've touched almost everything. I'm more than happy to take any other questions you may have. Otherwise, you've been a very engaging audience. Thank you for paying attention. Thank you for participating. Um, and it's yours. Thank you. Thank you.